There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have a car stopped in town and branch microbiome. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. everyone and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host Bill Cannon, retired NYPD sergeant. And with me today, straight out of Brooklyn and back from Florida, retired NYPD detective Phil Grimaldi. How you doing today, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy. How about you? Okay, you know, uh, I, I could use a little break too in Florida. I think I'm going to go to this week coming up on Friday, but uh, it's, it's relaxing to feel that sunshine on your face and, uh, you know, you, you did a show from there, so you didn't get away with uh, you didn't get totally away with it, right? Absolutely, but uh, I got to tell you, the weather was really, really uh, just perfect. I mean, it was not humid, which usually Florida is very humid. Um, I think it had to do with the time of the year, but there was a cool breeze the whole time we were there. And then the last day, we traveled over from we were on the East Coast. We were in Deerfield. We traveled all the way to the uh, West Coast to Marco Island. Stood there overnight at uh, at the Hilton uh, in Marco Island. And uh, even the weather there, it was very cool. We went out to dinner that night, and uh, we were actually on the beach. And we were a little chilly. We actually had to move our table very close to the building just so we could. Uh, yeah, my daughters were cold, and my wife was a little chilly. But uh, yeah, it was great weather, though. Great time, like you said. Uh, we didn't see a drop of rain in the week that we were there. We were very, very fortunate that way. And uh, being around family, we had a little bit of. We had that bad news that uh, my close friend Joe Ponzi had passed away last Monday. It was actually at the funeral yesterday. But uh, other than that, yeah, we had a really nice time. We spent Easter there. Uh, it's great being around family. We had such a great time and uh, really, really glad to be back, though. Well, I'm glad to have you back, Phil. While you were gone, I know, and I know you kept track of this, but one of the cases that we were covering early on, and I'm going to put it up on the screen, is um, uh, that's Marcus Spanavello on the left and uh, Cassie Cawley. Of course, he's a suspect, uh, more than a suspect, in, in, the, in the murder of uh, Cassie Cawley. He happens to be her uh, her baby's father, a four-year-old daughter, um, Sailor. And uh, he's been extradited back to Florida. But one of the things that's a little bit strange to me is that they haven't, um, the autopsy results have not come back yet. And for me, the only explanation I can have with that is that perhaps they're waiting on the toxicology. And that's the only explanation I can think of. But I'm going to play a little bit of this on the screen, and um, we'll hear what they have to say in the news here. Half hour, Marcus Spandabello is back in Florida tonight after being extradited from Tennessee. He's the main suspect in the death of his ex-girlfriend, Cassie Carley. Fox News' Shelby Myers in studio with us right now to update this case. And Shelby, you talk with Carly's sister. What's her reaction to this news? Well, viral Anise Rayanne Carly says she's glad Spanabello is behind bars in Florida. Now she just wants him to start talking. 
Tonight, Marcus Spanavella with a new look, sporting a bit more facial hair and a smirk in his most recent mugshot in the Santa Rosa County Jail. Spanavella has been spending time in Tennessee on charges of tampering with evidence and giving false information to investigators about the death of Cassie Carley. Carly was his ex-girlfriend and the mother of his four-year-old daughter, Sailor. Carly was found in a shallow grave at an abandoned barn outside of Birmingham. Now back in Florida, Spanabello is being held on a $20,000 bond with special conditions that if he does post bail, he has to wear a GPS monitor, can't contact Carly's family, and can't leave the Florida panhandle. He's also got a hold for a warrant out of Alabama, although it's unclear the charge. I am fully confident that it will be enough until we get the full murder charge to keep him behind bars. The assistant state attorney on this case says they're waiting on Carly's autopsy results before upgrading or adding any charges. Tonight, Rayanne says Carly's daughter, Sailor, is home. She is safe. She is at home, her home that she knows of. And um, we're still FaceTiming. I FaceTime with her every day, what she's used to. And she's doing very good. Um, just trying to get back to her normal routine. And for Sailor's sake, Rayanne hopes Spanavella will start talking about what happened to Cassie. I hope one day I can find forgiveness because at the end of the day, that is still Sailor's father. But um, it's going to be a long road for sure until we can get to that. Um, and he's definitely making it a lot harder to forgive when he also won't cooperate and give any answers. A memorial for Cassie that's open to the public is planned for May 21st in Navarre Beach at Blue Heron Pavilion from 12 to 6. Spanavello is set to be in court for his initial appearance tomorrow at 1.30. You know, I have a, a, a bunch of concerns about that. First of all, um, Ray Ann Cawley, he's not going to talk. He's got an attorney. He's, he's not going to tell what happened. That, uh, that ship has gone you know it sailed a long time ago anything that he says is just another nail into his coffin so yeah he's right not so he's he's not going to say a thing yeah. what makes me nervous and and when i heard it i sort of cringe and it's this whole thing of twenty thousand dollar bond are you kidding me that's two thousand dollars who can't come up with two thousand dollars and they're going to have a gps like a tracking on are you kidding me that's ridiculous you know Phil, when I was on the NYPD, I remember a guy in the 2-8 precinct who had an ankle monitor on, went outside his apartment and shot three people and then just went back home. And I was just like, that doesn't prevent the guy from doing anything, you know? And right. 20,000 bond coupled with a GPS tracking device? Are you kidding me? Well, I think those um, those bail uh, uh, arrangements are based on, uh, you know, the charges that there's no murder charge yet. So I think once the uh, once the murder charge is uh, is, uh, you know, hit, uh, you know, gets catches up with him, there may be uh, a remand with no bail at all. But, yeah, it seems rather low. Even, you know, you got uh, circumstances here that he's obviously the main suspect in the disappearance and murder of Cassie. And, uh, there's so much, uh, you know, a ton of evidence against him. Uh, we don't know the, uh, exact evidence with regard to, you know, uh, 
what was recovered off of her body and stuff like that with regard to DNA, different things like that. But uh, yeah, it does seem quite low. Like you said, a couple of grand and he could be out the door and an ankle monitor doesn't do much if he decides to uh, take off. You know, I mean, uh, it's not like they're going to have somebody posted outside his house, you know, the minute he uh, leaves the residence. So yeah, that's quite concerning to me as well. The good news is, is that little sailor is back home in her, uh, the home that she was used to as uh, the sister Rayanne stated. That is good news. Uh, just so happy that that child is safe and sound. Uh, there was a lot of concern when we first started covering this story uh, with regard to Sailor since, uh, you know, we, it was believed that uh, she was in the, uh, in, you know, in the custody of, uh, of Marcus. So, uh, yeah, great news on that end, but uh, concerning about this issue about Bell. Uh, Iris Hewlett, this is a great um, question. Uh, Marcus hasn't been charged for Collie's death as if as of yet. You would think the autopsy already would yield cause of death, but if there's no sign of trauma, you two think that they're waiting on toxicology. Yeah, I mean, I would have thought that, yes, the autopsy, the cause of death and manner of death would have been already decided. However, is there a possibility that the toxicology had something to do or has something to do with uh, the cause of death with Cassie Cawley? And I can just speculate. I do not know. But I also cannot really understand at this point why it's taking so long for the results to come back. Yeah, good point, Billy. It's unusual that an autopsy result would take as long as it seems to be taking. Um, the only thing that I would think uh, regarding toxicology is that maybe he rendered her, uh, incapacitated her with some type of a substance, uh, and then, you know, maybe injected her with something or something to that effect. Yeah, toxicology is very important. I don't think that uh, she was going to spend a great deal, deal of time with him like uh, you know, if he slipped something in her drink, like they have that date rape drug, uh, roof, roof uh, I don't think it's anything like that because it seems like she was just going to pick up, uh, the baby sailor and, and, you know, and hightail it out of there. So maybe there was some type of a substance that he may have, I don't know, uh, rendered her, uh, uh you know, incapacitate her and, uh, then maybe poisoned her. I don't know, but, uh, yeah, uh, we're going to have to look deeply when that autopsy report does come back. And I think we'll be able to render a better uh, opinion on, you know, exactly what was the cause of death once we see that. But, yeah, it is taking uh, rather long, in my opinion, as well. You know, the, Ray Ann Cawley, uh, I, I do admire people that <laughs> are, are looking to forgive people, but I could never forgive this guy, you know. And um, it's, uh, you know, I think that maybe psychologists, religious people, they teach you to forgive more for your own well-being than for the person you're forgiving but it's way too soon to forgive this guy and i want to find out exactly what he did and uh, him take ownership of it you know before i would even utter those words forgive yeah 100 percent, billy i don't know uh if i could find it in my heart to forgive somebody for such a terrible terrible thing if it were my relative my uh my sister, God forbid, or a close family member. I don't know how fast I'd be able to get to that forgiveness point, but there was a uh, a captain on the police department, Captain Plackemeyer, who now deceased, but he had a great saying. He would say, when it talked about hate and stuff, he would say, 
uh, what you're doing is you're drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. So there is something in there with redemption and forgiveness. I get it, but not at this level. I don't think in my mind, I don't know uh, if I could forgive uh, Marcus Panavello for leaving a uh, little sailor without a mother. Uh, again, uh, the sister, she's talking about it. Maybe she has that in her heart. God bless her if she does. Uh, you know, in the Catholic religion, we're, we're taught to forgive and forget and to turn the other cheek and all. But I don't know that I could find that uh, in my heart uh, for such a, a terrible thing. You know, somebody beats you out of money or d does you wrong in some way, says something bad about you. I get it. Forgiveness, let it go. You know, let the other person stay with the anger. But uh, I just don't know if I could pull that off on, on this type of a situation. I totally agree. So we're going to get back to the. Uh the case of David Bonola and, of course, the uh, Osaya Gal case, which sort of um, caught everyone's attention. And uh, Phil and I knew uh, early on that this case was going to be solved. It was just how long it was going to take. And I have no idea, no doubt in my mind that the NYPD detectives knew who the killer was after the first day, after the tw first 24 hours. And, you know, I'm always enamored by reading the chat and of how fast people think the police should make the arrest. And it's just incredible to me. Like the patient's level is almost like zero. Oh, they, they arrested him somewhat quickly. You know, like, did it ever occur to you folks, and I'm not criticizing anyone, that they, they purposely waited to arrest him till they had solid, solid evidence they don't want to arrest someone have them walk out because they don't have probable cause. First thing you need is probable cause. The second thing you need is you want to have the goods. You want to have the evidence so that inevitably this case is going to go to trial. And someone asked in the chat before, will he still take this to trial even though he confessed? And the answer is absolutely yes. The first thing that the defense will try to do is to try to get the confession thrown out. I don't think that's going to happen. But that's the first thing that a, def a defense attorney is going to try to do. Say, oh, he was coerced. Oh, he doesn't understand. He's Spanish. He only speaks Spanish. He doesn't, you know, they'll come up with a million and one reasons that the confession should be thrown out. However, I don't think it will be thrown out. So the other day when I spoke to Dan Bibb, uh, the former Manhattan assistant district attorney, fabulous prosecutor, fabulous defense attorney, and I apologize to me, you folks that listen to the show. We had a real problem with it was actually Dan's audio, and I just bought him a microphone and sent it to him. Hopefully, he'll have it by tomorrow. As you can see, Phil and I have no problems with our audio because we have outstanding microphones, and we do this all the time. Dan, I think, was using his computer's microphone. It was blowing up. It sounded like a train was coming into the station, and I apologize. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Dan is a fantastic guest super knowledgeable and has prosecuted, you know, probably in over a hundred murder cases. And he said he would love to be the prosecutor on this case, in this case of David uh, Bonola. However, he said, I would hate to be the defense attorney because when asked, what is your defense with this? And he really didn't have a great idea or he couldn't come up with a great defense since the um, facts and the circumstances and the evidence is so, so strong. You know, Billy, um, you talked about 
the first thing that a defense attorney is going to try and do in, in the early stages of the legal process, defense attorney is going to try and attack the, uh, you know, him uh, giving a statement and making a confession. I've had that numerous times where, uh, you know, I would get a confession out of a perpetrator, write it out, videotape it, uh, go to trial uh, months later or a year or two later, and the defense is making these uh, outlandish claims that uh, the, the client was coerced into the confession, beaten, and then we would just pull out the arrest photo, we would show the videotape, and we would say, you know, uh, the, the district attorney's office would say, this is the arrest photo that was taken shortly after the confession within hours. Uh, does this person look like they're beat up? And uh, the judge would rule in our favor almost every uh, single time in situations like that. So yeah, that's going to be the legal maneuver. That's going to be the uh, the tactic that the defense is going to take. They're going to try and attack any and all evidence as well as the confession. Uh, I don't see a problem with any of these things. It looks like most of the, uh, if not all of the evidence and the confession is going to stand once a judge goes through, uh, you know, there's going to be arguments on both sides and the judge will make the ruling. And I don't think that there's going to be any problem with it. Billy, you called it uh, when we first uh, uh, looked at this case, we both had the same feeling that it was going to be a quick arrest situation. There was too much evidence leaning towards a perpetrator and it was just such a uh, vicious crime, uh, a tremendous amount of hate. Uh, it wasn't well thought out. It seemed like it was something that was, uh, you know, thought about uh, in a moment or two, uh, not well planned out at all. And uh, the evidence trail that was left, the blood trail, was leading right back to the victim. And I believe that uh, the reason that he removed the body was to, uh, uh, you know, delay uh, recovery of her remains and uh, maybe give him a little time to get out of the area and maybe to, uh, you know, to come up with a story or an alibi. So he removed the body from the location. However, it wasn't well thought out. There was a blood trail going right back to the house. And uh, probably, like you said, within the first hours, I'm not even going to say days, the first hours of this case, police probably had a, a pretty good idea of who the perpetrator was. And he was never a, a person of interest. He was just <laughs> he's still being called out in the news, Billy. I heard, I saw yeah. the news last night. They know, Dan, Dan and I had a big laugh over that too. I was just saying how much I hate that term, person of interest. It's so pathetic. It's just a pathetic term. And I hate when police departments use it because they've fallen into the trap of the media. The media wants little crumbs and they'll say, Oh, yes, we have a person of interest. They throw them those little crumbs. You know, they don't want to say he's a suspect because then they they jump all over it and they start putting it on front pages, but I don't know. So they soften it by calling the guy a person of interest. And you, you and I both uh, have said how much we despise that term. A person but of interest to me. Now, obviously it could be a tactic when you, you know, you don't want to raise somebody up, call them a suspect. I get that part of it. But a person of interest to me is, uh, let's say a body is dumped out of a car and there's a video camera somewhere close by and you see a person walking a dog. That would be a person of interest that I want to speak to. Maybe they saw the, uh, you know, the vehicle, license plates, things like that. So, but again, there's different tactics that are taken, but the media is calling him a person of interest in this case. And at this point, he's been arrested for it. He confessed. I don't think he's not even close to a person of interest. <laughs> he's a suspect. So. He's 100%. Let me, put, let me put this up on the screen. We'll play a little bit of this. 
Police have made an arrest in the murder of a Queen's mother whose body was found stuffed in a duffel bag Saturday morning. Antoine Lewis is live in Forest Hills, Queens, where police just detailed more information about the suspect. Antoine, what do we know? Well, we can tell you about this activity behind me in just a moment because the news conference just wrapped up literally a few minutes ago. But let's show you the suspect in question as we also try to fill in some of the blanks that have been part of this story since about a week or so since it all began. So police have identified the suspect as David Manola, saying that he is the person responsible for the death of Rosal Yagal. He is 44 years old with the last known address in Queens. Now, police say that he and the victim were having an off and on relationship for about two years and that she tried to end it. This is information just coming out of the news conference. Now, let's show you more about this story. Vanola is accused of murdering 51-year-old Osolia Gall, the Forest Hills wife and mother of two. Gall's body was found early Saturday morning, stuffed in a duffel bag on Metropolitan Avenue underneath the Jackie Robinson Parkway. A trail of blood led detectives back to Osolia Gall's home, which is about nine blocks from where the body was discovered. The medical examiner says that she died from multiple sharp force injuries to the neck. Police say that she was stabbed about 50 to 60 60 times with a knife they believe that was inside the house, one of the homes uh, uh, cutlery that was there. Police say that she had been out earlier that evening here in Forest Hill. She got home after midnight, had been in contact with Vanola, who arrived to the house a little bit later. Here's the rest. A heated argument ensues between the two in the basement. A knife is brandished. A violent struggle ensues, resulting in our victim being stabbed ruthlessly and brutally in excess of 55 times, causing her demise. And again, police say that after that, he put Gall's body into a bag about 10, blo 10 blocks, 9 to 10 blocks away from the home. The police say that he dragged it to that spot. Again, Metropolitan Avenue underneath the Jackie Robinson Parkway. Photojournalist Scott Pierce is giving you a look at the very front entrance of the 112, the 112th precinct here, because at some point, the suspect, Manola, is expected to be walked and then taken to central booking. And let's tell you what he's charged with. Right now, he's facing charges of murder, criminal tampering, and criminal possession of a weapon. Again, 44 years on, last known address here in Queens. Police believe that he has been in the country from Mexico for about 21 years. This is the very latest. We'll have more on our website, of course, and a complete report is coming up today at 5 o'clock. You know, he said the guy's name is not Manola, it's Banola. And uh, you could see that even the professional uh, broadcasters uh, make mistakes, you know, and uh, I think they're in such a rush to get it out there that they, uh, they make big mistakes like with his name one of the interesting things and uh when you talk about collecting evidence that you collect all evidence and uh on her handwriting on uh osoya gall's handwriting on the refrigerator was get new handyman so in essence they were obviously going to fire him not only was her relationship with him ending but their professional relationship as far as having him work for them as a handyman, those days were over too. So that is also outstanding evidence that the detectives recovered from that crime scene. You know, Billy, uh, there's another thing that I thought was uh, pretty uh, clever on the part of the police. 
there was no rush to arrest him once he was identified as a suspect. Now, obviously, it is conferral with the district attorney's office that goes on behind the scenes. And, you know, when once everything is presented to them, they may say, all right, let's wait for this piece of evidence to come back or let's do surveillance on the guy. We know where he is. We have eyes on him. He's not going anywhere. And then what happened was he threw out some bloody clothing. They were able to go through his garbage. They didn't need a warrant once it's disposed of. And they found uh, some evidence that's going to wind up being used against them. I think it was bloody bandages. I might've said bloody clothing, but I think it was bloody bandages uh, from the injuries that he sustained on himself. He eventually went to uh, seek medical attention for that. So all of these little things, listen, when you zero in, in on a suspect, you're working with the district attorney's office and you have a conferral with them and they have to authorize the arrest. So a lot of times it might be best to maybe take it slow. If you know where the guy is, you have constant eyes on him 24 hours a day. He's not going to slip through the cracks and get away. Um, you know, if you're waiting for some evidence to come back from the lab or you're waiting for uh, cell phone uh, information to come, different things like that, that's okay to, you know, maybe hold off a little bit. Obviously the NYPD has a tremendous this amount of manpower to cover things like that. So again, that little bit of time that they didn't jump out and arrest him, they were able to rec recover some blood evidence from the garbage at his home. Uh, these are all things that will be used in court against him to successfully get a conviction for the murder. Uh, one last thing I just wanted to say, uh, Bill and I have said this from the beginning, uh, people in the chat, you know, they kind of uh, thought that we were victim blaming or saying disparaging things about the victim in this case. It's not the case. The thing was, these were facts that were coming out from the media. Uh, we only report facts. It's not about... Uh, blaming or, or disparaging anyone uh, when we do a podcast. It was about the facts. The unfortunate thing is that she was having an affair outside of her marriage. I mean, that's her personal business. Uh, unfortunately for her, it did turn violent, led to her death. And uh, we don't judge people on what their actions are, what they do in their personal life. It's not about that. We deal strictly in facts. And we've showed that in the past that we won't report something unless we know certainly that it is a fact. So uh, again, it's not about blaming this victim. She uh, was involved in a relationship. That's her personal business. What we're concerned with is the facts. She was murdered, and the facts are the facts. Right. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you're not subscribed to us, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. And if you want to support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels, and we also have a channel membership. You can see the folks in the with the green font are members of our channel, and we have five uh, different levels with the uh the youtube membership so if you want to support us either through patreon or through our youtube channel members you know folks we had spoken about this case and we had made certain assumptions early on and one of the big assumptions we made that a murdering someone with a knife is very very personal inside their home makes it even that much more personal if if, if you surprise the burglar in your home, the person may stab you once and fl and get out the door. But this was with a knife, and it happened to be a knife that belonged to the family. It was part of a set of knives, which that sort of sort of shows. It's on the screen right now. That sort of shows that there was no premeditation. That he didn't go there with a weapon. That he acquired this weapon maybe when he got uh, enraged when she. Told, her, told him that their relationship was over. And 
also, when we talk about evidence on this knife, may very well be his blood, as well as his his DNA. And uh, tougher to get fingerprints off a knife. It's a smaller surface. It's not as easy to get fingerprints off. But certainly DNA and certainly blood evidence. And you can see that that is the knife that was used in this assault. So, so much of the evidence, and Phil and I had said, you know, the personal nature and the fact that uh, he he stabbed her anywhere from 55 to 60 times, depending on what you believe from the uh, news, is a, a very extremely personal situation, which shows that they knew each other. They absolutely knew each other. So all of the assumptions, which, of course, you're not supposed to make assumptions in this world, you know, that old expression, you make an ass of you and me, but it was more than assumptions. They were educated guesses based on our experience. Everything that we had said came to be true, uh, to the fact that he, we said he definitely lives in Queens. He lived around the block practically, you know. Uh, you know, uh, not a not a, a hardened criminal. This was his first arrest. Uh, he was from Mexico. He's been here 21 years. It seemed that they took great pains to say he was here illegally, which is actually a fact. He. Uh, was not here legally, uh, but that you know, like for whatever reason, they didn't want to put that out there. So you know, now now they're making a big deal, like oh, ICE is going to grab. No, what happens is he'll go, he'll go to trial, he'll get convicted, he goes to prison, and if he ever gets out of prison, that at after twenty five or however many years he serves, ICE can be waiting for him at the door to deport him back to Mexico. Whether that will ever happen. Or whether it still even happens now, since the power of ice has been totally diminished over the years, but that very well could happen. You know, Billy, uh, just just on that uh, on the, uh, the, the illegal immigration thing we're talking about, uh, that's a little too late for that. Uh, too little, too late. But you know, you're going back to the actual crime itself: fifty-five stab wounds, obvious rage. Uh, those are usually associated with a crime of passion, two lovers breaking up. And, you know, a lot of times um, we always, and we said this right from the beginning, we've seen it where a person is being stabbed and they cut themselves. The stabber actually cuts themselves because they don't take into account a couple of things. Number one, when you stab a person, you hit uh, a bone or something like that. That's going to stop the blade from penetrating much further. And a lot of times, especially if there's bloody, if it's a bloody cut uh, previous to hitting that bone, it's going to be wet and slippery. So again, the blade will stop and the person's hand might slide down and cut themselves. That's apparently what happened in this case. I think he had several cuts to both hands. And don't forget, you're not talking about stabbing into a, a uh, you know, a dead piece of meat. You're talking about stabbing into a person that's fighting for their life. They're moving, they're squirming, they're, they're retaliating. So again, it, it was a battle and uh, he cut himself several times. That's all going to be part of the uh, prosecution. That'll be evidence that'll be introduced at trial, I'm sure. And uh, so, uh, you know, uh, that, that handle that we you, when you showed the knife, uh, that could very easily become slippery. So there could be both uh, characters of uh, blood on that on that uh, specific knife, uh, the murder weapon. And there could also be the DNA, as you uh, reported. And then again, the bloody clothes were recovered and uh, the, the other items that were recovered along the way. So there could be blood DNA of both victims, uh, I'm sorry, both the victim and the perpetrator. And those things will be examined and uh, it'll just be one of the many, many nails that are going to go into this guy's coffin to convict him for the murder of uh, Ms. Gal. 
Well, you know, uh, Dan Bibb had spoken about it the other day when he was on the show that he, when he was a young DA, he took a course with the medical examiner and they were going over. Um, Patricia Baylor, thank you so much for the $10 super chat. Very much appreciated. Hi, guys. Have you ever read the crazy theories on the crime YouTube channels? You know, Patricia, I really only go, uh, I'll go on the YouTube channels that, where people know what they're talking about. So many content creators on YouTube have no clue about what they're talking about. They may be attractive. They may be, some of them, a lot prettier than me. And so a lot of guys want to go on those channels. But many of those people have no clue what they're talking about. And they're just reading from notes, notes that are available on the internet. And they have no way to um, explain the evidence or explain, you know, we used to call that term, the niatwi, it's the stupidest police term ever, but it stands for when, where, who, how, what, and why. And that's, uh, I don't know why that was the acronym, niatwi. It's the craziest acronym. But that's what you want to know, the when, where, who, how, what, and why of a case. And if you can explain all of that in scientific and through experience, I'm going to listen to you. If you can't, I know you're just reading back what the, and a lot of you can see a lot of these journalists don't, have a clue about what they're talking about, you know, and I'm not even talking about YouTube content creators. I'm talking about journalists. They're just repeating stuff they heard also. And even to the point where they get the guy's name wrong, you know, and any look, anyone can get the name wrong, but uh, you know, you're asking me, you know, who do I listen to and folks like that on, especially on YouTube, you can see there's so many people that are clueless. Billy, it's funny you bring that up because last, uh, I guess it was a little over a week ago and we had the shooting down in the subway in uh, Sunset Park, Brooklyn. I saw a journalist on TV saying, oh, well, he was down in the subway. Why didn't they shut the whole subway system down? That's obviously ludicrous. I mean, he could have went one or two stops and gotten off or he could have rode the train to the end and gotten off. And you're going to close every single subway station in a matter of minutes knowing that the perpetrator could be down in the subway still that was a ridiculous thing but yet it was a uh, a major news organization and the journalist is making such a ludicrous statement so a lot of what we say and do comes from obviously for our experience and a lot of it really is just common sense and a lot of times when you look at the chat there are some good questions in there and people come up with questions that we say, wow, that's a great question. Of course, it's stuff that we would think about or stuff that we would do had we been investigating whatever it is we're talking about. So yes, there's obviously people in there that uh, do come up with some good ideas and and uh, good uh, questions. And a lot of it really is just common sense, but a lot of it comes from experience, training, uh, you know, the, the, the crazy conspiracy theories. I always shy away from that because that's usually taking yourself into a, what we call a red herring. It's just a distraction. Go with the facts. Keep it simple. Stupid is a, a, the, the word kiss. Keep it simple. Stupid. <laughs> that's a good way to look at investigations a lot of times, because if you start to go into the conspiracy category, you're just throwing yourself off track. Sometimes there is a crazy reason why things take place, but most of the time it's usually pretty simple. In this case, uh, I don't think it was uh, that hard to figure out who the perpetrator was. Now, I'm not disparaging the detectives. They did a great job. Don't get me wrong. But if you're a professional detective, you do your due diligence. This wasn't like a whodunit right from the beginning. It was solved fairly quickly because of all the obvious things that took place, the mistakes that he made, the trail of blood and all of that.
So uh, again, thank you to the YouTube uh, uh, chatters that, that put those questions in there. But Bill's right. Sometimes you see some of these things on these YouTube channels that are just quite ridiculous. However, uh, they get they get a lot of uh, views. So it is what it is, you know. Well, anyone who's prettier than me is going to get more views, even though I know what I'm talking about. But, you know, Phil, it's funny when you said that we were one time were looking for this perp. He was six foot six, and he killed this old man doing a robbery. And we had a guy who set him up, and he was going to meet him at, at 145th Street at the main subway hub there. And one of the detectives said, should we sh shut the trains down? And, and myself and the inspector said, no, no. How do we know he's going to take the train to that stop, right? And sure enough, he, a guy six foot six comes walking along and two of the detectives tackle the guy and it's the wrong guy. But the real guy is across the street. He sees the tackle go down and he starts booking. So we got him too. We got both of them. And it was funny, the poor guy that got tackled who it wasn't him. He goes, I thought you guys were in the NFL. <laughs> you know, Billy, it's funny you brought that story up. I got to give you a quick story. This is, was really, really a similar type thing. Uh, we had a case where these guys had killed a bunch of people. And the case that started the whole task force off was the killing of a retired sergeant by the name of uh, Robert Zink. And so after uh, like a three or four week investigation, we had narrowed down who the perps were. And I was in a surveillance van outside of one of the perpetrators' homes. Now, the information we had is that he wore a backpack when he left the house. And in the backpack was where he kept the gun. So he comes out of the house and I start radioing for the uh, units in the area. It was right at the change of tour, very busy radio traffic. And the guy gets about maybe 30 feet down the block. And another guy happens to be walking down the block at the exact same time, basic physical description, but he also has a backpack, but he crosses the street and the other guy makes it to the corner. And sure enough, when I call for, for the backup units, they grabbed the wrong guy. So I wind up getting the right guy. I took him by myself. He didn't have the gun in the backpack. Rest was made confessions on both guys. And, uh, we closed, uh, actually we closed about four homicides on that case, but just by coincidence, uh, 30 feet behind the guy was another guy walking down the block with a backpack. And, uh, they, they actually talked, like you said, they tackled the wrong guy. But, uh, <laughs> and when I saw that going down, I says, Oh, I got to take it myself. And I was able to take him into custody without incident. Thank God. That's great. Fremont Pathfinder. Thank you for the $10 super chat. I noticed a lot of sensationalized assumptions with YouTube content people. I stick with you, duty Ron and a former teacher and, and administrator. What you all have in common his experience in your field. Well, thank you. And thank uh, you. Pathfinder, that happens to be true. But thank you so much also. And uh, thank you for your support of this channel. You know, folks, in this case, um, of course, it really upset the neighborhood, except the whole city. Uh, upset, I would say, the whole city, because it's a horrible, horrible crime. And you think of um, a, a person that's a, what we call them real crime victims. Someone's just going about their business, going about their life. They have nothing to do with the crime business. They're not doing anything wrong and they get murdered. That upsets people, you know? And the fact that she was a mother, the fact that she was uh, very beautiful, I know that should have nothing to do with it, but it does. People look at people and it had a lot to do with it. The neighborhood involved, you know, it was, sort of an affluent area and they all get upset. Oh my God, what's going on? Um, but when we talk about this case and what had occurred when they first recovered the body, I, I knew that 
that was going to be solved. Initially, I, I thought like most investigators think, oh, it's going to be it's going to be the son or the husband. Right away, I thought that because that's usually statistically what it is. But once they were cleared, and I, I said it still has to be someone that she knows. And I, Phil and I both said that, and we're not saying that because we're uh, we're mediums, you know. <laughs> and because I, I don't believe- extra lodge, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, I know, bad joke. But, you know, I don't. Uh, I, it's based on experience and seeing what actually occurred. But the detectives, I don't want to minimize the work they did. They did great work on this, and I I love looking at the um, the press conference because I I could see in the eyes of everyone at the press conference that. No one had had any sleep in at least two or three days. And you could, I would just play a little bit of this right here. Assistant Chief Joe Kenny, the citywide investigation chief, Julie Morales. All right, we don't have to go through all the introductions. Video. They observed a male who was wanted for questioning in a horrendous homicide. He voluntarily came back to the 112 precinct and made incriminating statements. Today, that male, David Bonola, male 44 years old residing at 10418 114th street in queens new york is being charged with murder in the second degree criminal tampering in the first degree and criminal possession of a weapon in the fourth degree in relation to the death of osolia gal female 51 years old this investigation is still preliminary there is a lot of work left to do but this is what I can tell you. On Friday night, April 15th, Miss Gal attends a show at Lincoln Center. She takes the train back to her neighborhood in Forest Hills. At 11.20 p.m., she stops in a local establishment for a short while before returning home. We believe she returns home at 12.20 a.m. We also believe Mr. Bonella arrives at her residence between 12.30 and 12.40 a.m. Mr. Bonella is a handyman who was employed by Mrs. Gal. They have been having an intimate affair for approximately two years. He is either let in voluntarily or he uses a key he has knowledge about hidden in the barbecue. A heated argument ensues between the two in the basement. A knife is brandished, a violent struggle ensues resulting in our victim being stabbed ruthlessly and brutally in excess of 55 times, causing her demise. Recovered at that crime scene is a knife, which we believe was used. Mr. Bonella then retrieved a hockey bag belonging to Miss Gal's son, placed her in the bag, and as video showed, was seen rolling the body down the sidewalks leaving a bloody trail through the streets of Forest Hills. At 7.50 a.m. Saturday, April 16th, that duffel bag was recovered at Metropolitan Avenue and the Jackie Robinson Parkway by a member of the public. We believe that after disposing of the body, Mr. Bonella fled through Forest Park, where investigators discovered the jacket believed to be worn by him during this vicious crime. Detectives also developed leads which led them to a location where boots, a t-shirt, and bloody bandages were discovered. Investigation also revealed that on Saturday, Mr. Bonella received treatment for wounds to both hands at an area hospital. 
As I said before, this case is still ongoing. We are still awaiting forensics evidence and are canvassing for more victim uh, video as we speak. But detectives through interviews, videos, and the public's help, and specifically the Queens DA, uh, uh, Melinda Katz and her staff who have been with us every step of the way, were able to quickly take this killer off the street. I just want to assure the public and especially the residents of Forest Hills that there are no outstanding suspects at You know, many people ask, you could see um, the evidence in this case is just voluminous and just uh, points to one individual. Many people asked, why did the police have to say she was having an affair? That has everything to do with this investigation. And would they have, this was another question that I got in the chat, would they have released this information if it was only on the word of the perpetrator, David Bonola? And my answer to that was no, because part of the victimology is you want you speak to lots of people. And I always said in a homicide investigation with something like this, I want to speak to the person's friends, her best friend, but her intimate friends, because they're going to know all about her life. They're going to know about all the inside uh, information to her life, the private information that no one else knows. So I'm sure that the detectives had spoken to many people, and it wasn't just on the word of the perpetrator, David Benola. Of course, Billy. And listen, um, when they said there's much more work to be done, I'd be looking into his emails and the text messages, the phone chats, because I want to know if there was an indication that he was violent in the past. You know, they said it was an almost a two year affair. Uh, I want to know, did he display signs of domestic violence towards her in the past? Was she afraid to break it off? Uh, was there, uh, uh, did she speak? Pick this specific time because her husband and her older son were going to be away looking at the college that she felt that if it did turn into an argument that she could contain it and, and, you know, end the relationship uh, with this uh, uh, David Bonola. So again, uh, I think that, you know, there was a tremendous amount of rage here. It was extremely violent homicide. Um, I think uh, chances are that, that he did display some type of uh, violence in the past or rage in the past. I don't think he just uh, went from, you know, this loving, uh, you know, intimate relationship that they were having into a violent homicidal rage. There would have to be something in between that, you know. So, again, like you said, Billy, I'd be talking to our friends. I'd be checking all of our social media stuff and our text messages. And, you know, like you said, there's going to be some people that she may have confided in friends, close friends, even a close relative uh, that may know and have some information on uh, on this uh, individual. So all very, very important. And like uh, the chief said there, uh, a lot of work still to be done because uh, this guy's going to be put on trial for a homicide and they want to make sure that there's uh, absolutely all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and there's no chance of him getting off on some technicality or anything like that. And again, we want to make sure we have the right person in custody that's responsible for the crime. So you put all of these things together and you do your due diligence and you do the right work on these cases, uh, everything will fall into place. You know, we're going to go into the domestic violence possibility in, in this case and relationships like this. But first, we're going to take a quick break, commercial break. 
Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. John Beatty Law, www.jbdlaw.com. John Beatty is a renowned personal injury attorney. He also is a retired and decorated NYPD sergeant. For over 15 years, John has litigated some of the largest accident and malpractice cases and verdict settlements in the country. John comes from a proud NYPD and FDNY family. He was an active sergeant in Brooklyn North and supervised in the legal bureau. John is a proud member of the Honor Legion and the Blue Knights. John Beatty litigates across the country for seriously injured victims and has helped recover over $200 million for grieving families. Call John now for a free consultation. John Beatty, 917-797-9520. John Beatty Law, www.jbdlaw.com. So, you know, Phil, with in these situations, in these even though this uh, was an affair that uh, wound up going really, really bad, is there a possibility of domestic violence within an affair? I think there certainly is. You know, she could have uh, dabbled in this affair and maybe he was placing her in extreme fear that she did want to break it up. And, uh, you know, uh, it sound, it did sound from what the uh, news reports are saying, and even the chief said it, an on-again, off-again affair. So, uh, you know, we don't know the inside details of this affair. I would definitely be looking at that. And uh, like I said, I just stated that uh, I don't think that he went from zero to 100 miles an hour to commit a murder. There had to be stuff in between, you know. Uh, uh, maybe she was in great fear, and that's why she chose this time to to try and end the relationship. So, again, uh, if she was having an affair and everything was hunky-dory, it was going along well, uh, what would be the need for her to break off the affair, you know, unless uh, she was going to try and give her marriage another go and he uh, rejected that. We don't know, but I think that there are ways to find out what these details are by doing all the things that we said. A deep dive into the victim. The victimology is very, very important in this uh, particular case. And again, since they had him talking, uh, I'm sure that they asked him about the two-year relationship uh, that went on. They may have gotten some important details. Now, again, are we going to take the, the perpetrator's word for it? No, not always 100%, but he did confess to the murder. Uh, I don't think he'd have reason to lie about details of the uh, of the relationship. But again, you would compare what he says uh, and you would look at, you know, what you could find out from her side, whether it be a friend, a close confidant, or from her uh, text messages or her social media or even emails. So again, you would compare the two and see if, uh, if they line up and uh, then you'd have a pretty good understanding and a pretty good background on what this relationship was like. And I just have a very strong suspicion that yes, I believe that have to be some uh, signs or signals or red flags of domestic violence in this case. I would really think that must be the case. Roberta Smith, Latin America has the highest rate in the world of gender-based sexual violence against women. And in Central America, two of every three women killed are the victims of femicide. 2017 UN report. Interesting. 
He does happen to be from Mexico. I would just uh, reiterate that in 21 years here, he didn't have a criminal history that, that I know of. I don't know if, if, he, if he has any sealed arrest. However, he did not have a criminal history. Um, I, I'm not, um, I don't know his complete background in regards to his own family. I know that he was married. I believe he has kids. I don't know if he was separated. I don't know the history there. But I'm sure that the detectives will do a deep dive into that and see what his relationship was like with his wife. But I mean, that doesn't, not gonna, it's not going to help him in, in a murder of this type. Also, folks, a lot of you have asked about murder first degree and murder for uh, second degree. The only, and I had Dan Bibb on the other day, the only um, subdivision that this could fit under murder first degree, there's one uh, subdivision where there's a torture uh, statute within the statute in murder first degree. And Dan Bibb said that's extremely tough to prove, but because she was stabbed over 55 times, if he was the prosecutor, he said he would go for that. But you know, murder first degree in New York State, uh, and I wasn't even aware of this. I don't know where I was for the last 10 years. There is no death penalty any longer in New York State. I wasn't aware of that. However, murder first degree carries with it a life without parole. But we've seen that before. We've seen cop killers that had life without parole getting released now. So what does that actually mean? So the difference between murder first degree is that statue of the torture, but Murder second degree carries with it upon conviction 25 years to life. So that means the person will get out someday. The person will see the light of day at some point. Especially in a case like this where the perpetrator is 40 years old. That puts him at 65, 25 years later. Uh, Again, 65 is not that old. A good chance that he would see the light of day. But when you bring up that statute about the torture, I think you'd really have to prove the torture by a medical professional coming in saying that some of the stab wounds were inflicted, that they weren't deadly. And then there was a, a period of time that passed before, uh, you know, the, the stab wound that did cause the ultimate death of the person. Um, I did have a case where um, what we called hesitation marks, a woman uh, was stabbed. Uh, the perpetrator was a, a home invasion robbery and the perpetrator was trying to get money out of her and he was uh, stabbing her in the throat, but just little prick marks uh, on her throat. And then eventually he did stab her in the throat, which it went in deep. And then he banged her head and, and, and eventually strangled her. It was a horrific crime scene, but those could prove uh, wounds like that would be able to prove that there was an element of torture in there. Where he was trying to get the money from her and these little hesitation marks, as we call them, uh, that we uncovered from the uh, from the uh, results of the crime scene as well as the autopsy. So again, you'd really you'd really have to have a, a strong case to prove that. I don't know how much uh, you know a, a medical professional is going to be able to uh, stand up in court and say that. Again, then you might have situations where a person is held for a couple of days in torture. I think that would be my, uh, much easier to, uh, you know, to prove that there was torture, in fact. So, again, murder one, murder two. Like you said, Billy, there is no death penalty no- anymore in New York. So uh, they both carry a, a long time in jail. In my opinion, I don't see that uh, someone can uh, should see the light of day in a case like this where it's such a horrific crime. But, uh, again, this is the, uh, the laws that we, uh, you know, the criminal justice system that we have to abide by. Absolutely. 
Jakey five uh, is it's possible her and her husband were having separate lives and staying together for the boys till they are older. Jakey sure. five, anything is possible. You know what I mean? We don't know what goes on behind closed doors, and that's their business. You know, and I I know it's sort of this makes it sort of a much more interesting case to the public and to the media that this exists. But the police, the detectives, the investigators have to. Uh, bring this out because it's part of the victimology. It's part of motive, you know, uh, to show that they had a prior relationship. So uh, it's definitely, they had to bring it out there, not for just prurient reasons or to make a good story for the press. This is part of the investigation. Jakey five, I thought he moved her body because he didn't want the young son to be the one to find her. He possibly got on well with the boys. You know, I don't know what his relationship was anyone else in the family. I think that, he was probably just in a crazy fit and he just, you know, I don't think he was thinking uh, sensitivity at that point. You know, I yeah, think he was I, more I, thinking I of getting away with it and getting himself, getting the body away from the scene and himself getting away with it than thinking of not wanting the family to find the body. I, I don't find that to be credible. I, I don't need it, Bill. I think it was more of what you said. It was a uh, instinctual thing to remove the body to perhaps, uh, you know, uh, throw investigators off from finding the victim and, you know, to see uh, it would definitely lead to him. Uh, you know, I don't know how much he really thought about it because, again, there probably was a lot of blood in the basement. And, uh, you know, if the body wasn't found right away, uh, there was still going to be a great concern for this woman's well-being since there'd be blood. She wouldn't be answering her telephone, obviously, or cell phone, or she would be unaccounted for. So, it was probably just a spur of the moment decision. I don't think, like you said, sensitivity came in that he didn't want the son to find the, the mother's body. Uh, listen, anything's possible. We don't know what the relationship was, but it was probably just a spur of the moment decision, in my opinion. Oh, I just had a, a someone's, I, I just missed it. Someone I wanted to read that their, um, their follow up. I think the question was, um, how do we know for sure? Um, that she was having an affair. And I, I, I approached this before I addressed this before. Oh, here we are. Sean, Sean, uh, do we know for certain that she was having an affair with the handyman or is it just the handyman's word? Sean, what I, I addressed this before and what I believe is the detectives would have never put that out there. If it was just the testimony and the confession of, uh, David Bonola, they had other, people they had they have i as i said part of the victimology and i explained it on numerous other cases but in case you don't know what victimology is the victimology is basically the study of the background of the victim and detectives take a deep dive into that so what part of that deep dive is to talk to the the friends and the closest friends of the victim because in most instances friends intimate friends know more about the deceased than the family does. So I'm sure that they had other people uh, that they interviewed uh, conferring that, yes, in fact, this, she was having an affair with this guy, David Bonola. I don't believe that they would put it out there on just his word. And uh, I would pretty much base my reputation on that. Uh, whole Bible believe a woman. That's a good point. Why did he text threats to her husband? I think he thought he was being smart when he actually was being stupid. He thought he was going to throw off the investigation. And it really, it was an amateur way 
to to try to uh, misdirect the investigation, almost comical, almost laughable if the case wasn't so sad that he was trying to throw the case off by and texting him with her phone, with the deceased phone. So uh, just just crazy. That, but I think that's my opinion. Uh, stay fresh. Uh, production, great job, NYP and detectives. I think he left the body there thinking someone else would tamper with the body. No, I think he. No, I think he just let, took the body off away from the crime scene because he thought he was going to try to get away with it, you know, and uh, it wasn't going to happen, you know. You know what, Billy? Just think about it. He goes into this rage. He stabs this woman fifty or sixty times, whatever it is, and he removes the body. And in his mind, maybe he's thinking, you know, uh, he can turn it on that someone was out to get them. He texts the husband, so it was all uh, done in such a ridiculous, uh, stupid way. But uh, I want to make one other point. You talked about uh, whether or not that uh, they confirmed that she was having an affair. It would be reckless for the chief of detectives to make a public statement about the woman being involved in an affair unless it was true. I think they uh, were able to confirm that rather quickly, whether it be text messages or a close friend coming forward, uh, you know, interviews with people around her. And then you had him corroborating what they already knew in his statement. So I think that, yeah, the chances of, you know, uh, the chief of detectives of the NYPD going on the air and at a press conference and making making a statement about this woman's affair uh, and it only being based on a statement of the perpetrator. I think that's probably a zero. They had the chances of that are zero. They, they knew that it was already uh, able to be corroborated and confirmed. So that's why they put that out there. 100% belly. You know, when I was speaking to uh, Dan Bibb the other day on the show, um, he just spoke about this case uh, in the same exact way we were speaking about it, Phil, is that, there's so much evidence. And he even uh, agreed with us that he felt that they had the perpetrator identified, the person of interest identified in the first 24 hours, maybe even sooner, because there was so much evidence pointing in a certain uh, direction. And also, you know, when detectives do interviews, guys, just so you know, um, you know, when you do an interview, you ask questions, obviously. And I would tell this to my students when I was teaching college. And when you ask a question, you get an answer. And based on answers, you get more questions. Right. And you build, you build, it's like a snowball. You build a story and you build facts and circumstances. And then you vet the information. You don't just take the information from someone and say, oh, this person said this. Because many times people tell you stuff that turns out to be total bullshit, you know? So you Absolutely. have to vet the information and question others to see if, in fact, what you were just told by this other person is true. And if it's not, you disregard it. You still keep it in the case folder. You still type what's known as a DD5 or a complaint follow-up. But that's how you, you know, many cases, homicide cases, sometimes I think they, they stop at 50 DD5s and then they start a new case folder. So some of them have 10, 12, 15 case folders. And it's like reading Gone with the Wind. It's a huge, huge book almost. And, you know, and that's, of course, that's why they have indexes and they have uh, folders and all kinds of stuff because it gets voluminous. And following a, a homicide case is like, it's, you have to be very organized. If I have any organizational skills in my entire life, I learned it from doing that. 
It's funny, Billy, you're talking about these things. You give me flashbacks with the index and 50 DD5s, and then you start a new <laughs> folder and all. And I'm starting to get flashbacks of when I was on the job. And, you know, uh, when you think about it, just think about the initial stages of this case. So now the body is found. They follow the trail of blood. They get to the house. The son, who was probably asleep through the night, he, he wakes up and says, listen, my father's in uh, Oregon with my brother visiting colleges. I don't know where my mother is. And they know that there's this trail of blood. They have the body down the block. So again, you know, you're going to look to someone who was the close. That's why they initially they thought that the son may have been involved in it. If, you know, nobody else is home. Nobody else lives there. It, it seemed like this was obviously uh, a murder of passion, let's say, or, or someone close to the victim. So that's where they went with it. Obviously the son was eliminated as a suspect early on. And, uh, you know, I guess from word of the, uh, you know, from the family, from the husband. And then once they started to, uh, you know, look into the cell phone and different things like that, they probably came up with either a friend or someone that was a confidant to this woman. And they figured out that uh, there was an affair going on and, you know, they just went in that direction. Tammy Donaldson, uh, does anyone know for a fact how he entered the home? They, the chief of detectives never stated it as a fact. Exactly, right. He said either she let him in or he had a key that he knew was secreted near the barbecue. Right. So that was never answered for us. But do, do they know? I'm sure the detectives know. That would have been one of the things they would have asked him in the interrogation. Gene Juju, will he get... Less years in prison because the police think he did not come there to kill her. I did not come with a knife in a bag, but he could be lying. No, he will not. The murder second degree means uh, intend death, cause death, murder too. Boom. That's the that's the definition of it. There's other subdivisions to it, but intend death, cause death. Be tough to say he didn't intend death when you stab someone 55 times. Absolutely, Billy. Uh, you know, that part of it, uh, you know, just because he didn't mean to, you know, it's it's like going to a bar and you start a fight and you, you kill somebody, you know, you didn't go there, you went there to have a drink, but you're still guilty of the crime of murder if you kill a person. So that's a good point, Billy. And I think that was a pretty good question, actually, because, you know, the, the average person may not understand the legal system. So yes, that was a really good question. No, excellent. Let me just play a little more of the... Um of the, the press conference here, just a bit of it. And then I'm, I'm sorry, you, you said, were they breaking up? They had been off and on and they had broken up prior, but had reunited early in the month of April. Uh, and their relationship was considered at an end. We don't have her statement yet. Can you talk a bit about the uh, alleged text messages that came to her husband who was out of town? Did, did he indeed get a message and was it threatening? A, a message was sent from the victim's cell phone to the husband. That message uh, was, as previously reported, that uh, there had been a crime in the past that was now uh, that 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 same person from the crime in the past was back again. We believe that to be completely false as far as there was nothing to do with any crime in the past in this <coughs> we We have it from in in the confession that he sent that message. That and he that has that no burglary in the past. I'm sorry, that the family, the rest of your family is the abuser. That was 
that is the nature of the message. We don't believe there was any danger to the family. We believe he just didn't want it to be found by the family. The knife is consistent with knives that are in the home. Tony? Uh, Detective Bonham, uh, the uh, relationship, did it, there's a report that this may have started while she went on an overseas trip and met the defendant overseas. Any truth to that? So at this time, we don't believe that to be true. So you can see the press likes to take a deep dive into things that really have nothing to do um, at this point anyway with the uh, with the prosecution of the case. And uh, that was that was John Miller um, who shut them down. I heard his voice from the side. He's the uh, he's the deputy commissioner of uh, of uh, terrorism. And uh, he's the one that shut it right down because. He obviously has a lot of experience. Just he was a news. That. He was a news reporter himself. In fact, he's famous for uh, being the only person that ever interviewed Osama bin Laden. That's right. He followed so, him into a cave, and uh, I tell you, that's really uh, that's real good journalism on his part. And like you said, he's got the experiences, many years in in uh, in journalism. He was with CBS before he went back to the NYPD because he was with the NYPD on the Brat, and he left for a while. Then he went back, and uh, yeah, he's got ex tremendous experience, so he knew when to shut it down. Bill, quick point about the knife. Uh, I think you brought it up earlier. I just want to make another point about it. Uh, a murder weapon is taken from the kitchen, uh, maybe on a block of, of other knives. And what they will do is they will photograph. They may even vouch for the other knives and show the consistency that that knife came from that set of knives within the home. Uh, again, if the, if it wasn't found on the victims uh, in the area where the homicide was uh, committed, if it was found in the, in the perpetrator's possession, they would do the comparison and say that this knife comes from this set. It's consistent with that. So that's just a little side note. I think that's uh, of some importance in a case like this to, to, to be able to say that the knife was in the home probably prior to the murder and it, uh, you know, more than likely came from that set of knives. So that's uh, another good point to be brought up. Alexandra Halsey. I love, I love your question. I read that he did not request a lawyer initially. Will this be a problem in the trial? No, it will not be a problem in the trial providing that the detectives would have had someone that spoke English and Spanish because Many times a defendant, you know, speaks fluent English, but then he gets to trial and all of a sudden he understands no English. And and they'll try to make uh, a, a big deal out of that. So they'll have they'll have a detective read him his Miranda in in Spanish and in English. And he may even say, Oh, you don't have to read it to me in Spanish. I understand English perfectly well. But they need to document that. Yeah, that's a, a favorite one of attorneys, of defense attorneys to uh, say, oh. He didn't understand what they were asking him. He doesn't speak English. He's been here 21 years. Maybe he should have learned a little bit of English, you know. 
Well, as Warner Wolf used to say, let's go to the videotape, which these confessions will be on videotape. And you'll be able to see if he's fluent in English or Spanish or whatever it is. And if there was any question, I'm sure that the uh, NYPD would do their due diligence and bring in a Spanish-speaking officer detective to translate to this uh, gentleman that, uh, you know, that uh, whatever they were asking him and, and the, the answers that he were given. So, uh, you know, again, I don't think that's going to be an issue at the trial, but uh, it's a good question to be brought up. Uh, he waived his Miranda warnings and made a, a statement, which is going to wind up uh, being used against him, I'm sure. 100%. You know, Phil, we we spoke about this, and I have the picture up on the screen of him wheeling the uh, the duffel bag with her body in it. And initially before, of course, they, they had a suspect and before they connected the dots and came up with that David Bonola was, in fact, the person uh, wheeling this duffel bag, we had both said one of the obvious things that the detective better ask is to show this to David Bonola and say, is that you? And that slams the door. If he says, yeah, that's me, no need for an identification. Okay. I want you to sign, you know, sign this picture or let's produce a picture. Let's let's print a picture of this and let's have him sign it and date it and time it so we can show it when it goes to trial. Yes, we showed him this picture of a of an individual as yet as yet unidentified wheeling this duffel bag and we asked him is that you and he said yes that's me. And this is his signature. He put the time there and the date slam dunk yeah i think uh i might word it a little bit differently and just say do you know who this is do you know who this is does this look familiar to you and again you know he's gonna know it's him and like you said you'd get him to sign a date and time and he identified the person in this image as himself wheeling a, a hockey bag with uh you know the the victim's uh, body inside of it so uh you know, I'm sure that they did all of these things. This is uh, really just for us, just the, the steps that we would take, the common sense steps that we would take. And again, I don't think you're going to find in this case, uh, you know, some, you know, major, major, uh, you know, uh, screw up by the police department they did, that they didn't read him his rights or he didn't understand his Miranda warnings. And he made this statement. I don't think that's going to take place in this case. Uh, they look very competent to me. Bill, you froze up there. <laughs> I'll take him out and put him back in. I don't know what happened to Phil. It looks like he uh, his camera froze, but uh, we're getting near near the end. Um, Iris Hewlett, the family. Uh, Phil, you froze up. I put you back. Okay. Can you hear me? Iris Hewlett, the family were accustomed to him coming and going from the home. I mean, I would think, you know, for me to give the key to my home to someone, that's a huge, huge level of trust. You would have to trust that person immensely. And obviously in this situation, the trust was uh, violated. Really? To the... Yeah. I think I lost your audio for a second, but you're back. Okay. There's something okay, going on I'm here. Back. <laughs> Someone in the chat suggested steroids. I'm saying is a sub. Well, I'm not going to get into that with this steroid stuff, guys. There's so much evidence in this. Uh, Linda Lafriere, police said they think he moved the body so the son would not see it. Well, that's what he stated. Uh, we don't know if that's uh, true, untrue. Uh, but, you know, look, there's, as we said, this case has so much, so much evidence. Even Dan Bibb said 
he would love to be the person prosecuting this case because he views it as uh, as a slam dunk. Uh, can you still lose a case with tons of evidence? Yeah, you can. It all depends on what the jury says. So, folks, we're going to stay with this case as it comes back, as it goes into court, as there's more twists and turns. But it's I think it's a very clear case about what occurred. Tragic case, horrendous case. But um, the Queens detectives, the NYPD, they did a fantastic job. And, yeah, it was uh, DP Infomus, excellent police work. It was excellent. And it's still not over. You know, people think once you make an arrest, once you collect the evidence, the case is over. It's not over. It's not over until you go to trial and you get a conviction. So uh, that's what it's all about, you know. Even then, sometimes cases are overturned. It happened to me, a case of 20 years old, they overturned it. And so, you know, yeah, yeah, listen, if you do the job right the first time, no matter what, uh, you know, they come up with on, uh, on appeals and stuff like that. Uh, in this particular case, we were able to put the, to put together a motive, put together a relationship, uh, you know, put together all of the evidence, the blood evidence, the uh, DNA evidence, the, uh, the the cell phone technology, the video evidence. There was uh, just a lot here. So I think we were able to start from motive and get to uh, the actual, uh, you know, murder and all the stuff in between. So uh, it was really, really uh, a good job by the police. Good, good, great police work. So uh, it gave us a clear picture of what went on. You know, no doubt. And there's, there's still a lot of um, evidence, uh, digital evidence, you know, cell phone evidence, text messages, uh, DNA evidence, all of that to come into this case. So the case will be even stronger, in my opinion. Phil, uh, I probably should have been your last words, but I'll give you I'll give you a few more last words if you want. Yeah, last words. Obviously, uh, condolences to the family of this woman. Uh, whatever transpired between her and, and the perpetrator has nothing to do. She didn't deserve to be killed in this manner. It's terrible. And again, uh, condolences. Real quick, I talked about my good friend Joe Ponzi that passed away. Uh, last Monday, I was at his funeral yesterday. Uh, a quick point about Joe. Joe was in the district attorney's office in Brooklyn for 37 years. Uh, a lot of times when we would do investigations, when I was in the detective bureau, we'd be at odds with the district attorney's office when they didn't want to, uh, uh, you know, justify or, or uh, authorize an arrest in a homicide investigation. But Joe was the guy that no matter what was going on in the district attorney's office, everybody loved him. He had a great personality. Joe, may you rest in peace. Condolences to your family. He has a beautiful, beautiful family, seven grandchildren, two daughters, and a lovely, lovely wife. I can't tell you the outpouring of sympathy at the funeral yesterday. Just uh, a great guy and uh, taken from us too soon. And uh, we may be doing a tribute show to him uh, very shortly in the, in the future. Uh, so, Joe, God bless you. Folks, uh, thank you so much for listening, and all you guys have a safe night, and we'll see you soon. Stay safe, everyone. One episode, just ain't enough.